Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Jess Van Zeel, an eyepatch-wearing 26-year-old business owner, best-selling author, and resilience expert. Jess lost her eye at the age of 22 due to an extremely rare form of cancer, conjunctival ocular melanoma. This type of melanoma is a pigmented lesion of the ocular surface of the eye. It is extremely uncommon, but potentially devastating because it can invade the local tissues and then spread systematically through the lymphatic system. Despite its severity, the rarity of available cases has made the limited evidence for diagnosis and management really difficult. With her battle of cancer, Jess learned a lot about resilience and the art of bouncing back. She realized she didn't want anyone to face life's challenges unarmed. So the art and science of building resilience has become her passion. This is why Jess developed the patch system, which will give the skills and tools to grow and thrive when someone is faced with a challenge. She has shared her story and the patch methodology on stages across Australia alongside Tony Robbins, Turia Pitt, Michelle Bridges, and Naomi Simpson. In 2019, Jess's book, I Won, was published internationally. Join us in this very special interview with Jess about the cause, treatments, and misconceptions about congenital ocular melanoma, and hear Jess's incredible story of courage, mindset, and resilience. I started by asking Jess what she thought was the biggest misconception about ocular melanoma. I think the first one is that most people don't realize that you can actually get melanoma on your eye. I certainly didn't know that when I was diagnosed that even any form of cancer of the eye, let alone melanoma on the eye, was a possibility. And the second one is that there are so many different subtypes of ocular melanoma. I was diagnosed with a subtype called conjunctival ocular melanoma, which is on the front part of my eye on the white parts. I think it's the most common is the uveal melanoma. It's still an extremely rare ocular melanoma and that's on the back of the eye and all the treatments for the different types of ocular melanomas are different as well. So tell us about your story. How did you first start from the beginning? Because I know it's been quite a journey of up and downs and misdiagnosis and things for you. Yeah, absolutely. So I've had a red spot on the left eye for honestly, as long as I can remember. And mum used to go to the doctors and get it checked out and get them to talk about, like get them to have a look at it. And they used to just say it was a burst blood vessel because that's what it looked like. And to come back in six months and when we return, it was the exact same story over and over again. And I can kind of remember that from about the age of 10. As I sort of entered my later teen years, that spot did seem to change. It became highly vascularized and raised. So it looked a lot redder. It was a little bit uncomfortable and I could feel it when I was blinking. But when we went to the doctors and my local GP, they still didn't really think it was too much to worry about. I think I was about 19 or 20 when I said to my doctor, it's actually starting to really impact me. It's really annoying. My eye was starting to get quite dry as well. And he eventually said, we'll send you to a local ophthalmologist and they're probably just going to need to do like a laser surgery to sort of remove the redness. So I booked in that appointment and that was in 2013. And I remember just going and seeing this doctor, not thinking too much of it. And then he turns around and says that I needed to have a biopsy. At that stage, I was quite young and naive. I didn't even know that a biopsy was something to test the tissue and make sure that something wasn't wrong. And he sort of said to me, well, you know, I said, we don't have private health insurance. Can we go through the public system? And that's when he turned to me and said, well, 
if you go through the public system, you're going to be waiting a very long time, at least six months, and you don't have that time if it's cancer. And that was the first time I'd actually realised that this was something to be worried about, to be concerned about. And I actually don't remember the rest of the appointment. It just kind of blurred out because all I could remember thinking is, I'm 20 and you're telling me this could be cancerous. What is going on? And I was in the middle of my, I think it was my first year of university. I was about to go into my exams the week later. So I didn't do very well in those exams and I booked the surgery for the week afterwards. And I didn't feel extremely comfortable with this doctor, but at the same time, from what he'd said, like I needed the surgery immediately. So I just went through with the surgery. On the other side of it, he said within a couple of weeks, it was benign. There was nothing to worry about. And I just kind of went, okay, well, I've had a bit of a cancer scare. We're all good. Everything's fine. And went back to my normal life. There wasn't too much of a follow-up that he recommended. It was just kind of like, oh, okay, well, that's done. About six months later, I noticed some, I think it was three black spots, basically on the outside of where the red spot had been in different spots of it. And my mum was really, really worried. And I just remember saying to her, I can't, I can't deal with another benign tumor, benign cancer, benign, whatever, making me stressed out, making me anxious and forcing me to pretty much fail my degree. I can't quite deal with that right now. I'll wait until the end of the year once my semester's finished and we can deal with it then. Now, in the meantime, I was still also planning on going on a gap year the following year and I'd already booked all of that in. So I saw, eventually went and saw the doctor 10 days before I was meant to be leaving for this eight-month gap year or eight-month trip overseas. And he turned around and told me I needed to cancel the entire trip. Yeah, I was like, ah, no, no, actually, (laughs) that's not happening. And he was like, oh, well, you know, you need to. And he started giving me all of these private doctors to go and see. And I just remember in that moment feeling like I was, I guess, in a sense, like just dollar signs on a seat. I just felt like he was trying to make money out of me and that he couldn't care less about my well-being and what was going on in my life. It was just kind of like, well, you're going to go and see a private doctor. And I was like, but we don't have private health insurance. Like, this is not the direction. And I think that was what was really sort of a barrier for me was that he wasn't listening to that. So I didn't trust him for any of the information that was coming through. And was this the same doctor that you saw initially? Yeah. 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 He also, I mean, like I do go into a lot of detail in my book about this and he just had this nature that was very sort of abrupt and very much like he couldn't care less about who I was or like anything like that. It was just kind of like I was there, this was my situation and he didn't really have very good bedside manner as a whole and yeah so as a result we came to a agreement that I don't think he was too happy with and that was that I would go to South Africa which was where I was meant to be traveling to and I would see a specialist over there and my dad lives in South Africa so he set up an appointment with one of the top ophthalmologists over there and within two days of me landing in South Africa I was seeing him And the morning after that appointment, I was already in for surgery. He did a biopsy straight away. And even then, there was a lot of vagueness around it. Within a week, they still hadn't got the results. I was meant to be traveling and moving around a bit. And he said, oh, well, you know, we've got some of the results coming back at the moment. We're just waiting for them to be signed off. And, you know, at the moment, you can go travel and we'll give you a call and give you the results from there because at the moment, it's looking like it's benign. So at that point, I felt very safe and I was like, oh, okay, well, if you're saying that it looks like it's benign, we've already had three specialists and you're just waiting for the top specialist to sign off on it. We're pretty good. And I was very grateful at that moment that I hadn't cancelled my trip. So we went travelling and didn't hear back from the doctor for a while. Um, That appointment was in like November 2014, midway through. I didn't hear back from the doctor until the start of January 2015. And the doctor called us and said, you know, we need to see you immediately what's going on. And for some reason, the calls hadn't been coming through to my dad's phone. It hadn't been coming through to my phone. And apparently they'd been trying to contact us all the whole time. And they said at that appointment, he said, no, it's come back as conjunctival ocular melanoma. I was still being quite a stubborn 21 year old and I went, well, I was like, cool, but can we just manage that from here? Because I've still got, you know, seven months or 
I think six months of this trip left. You know, I want to go and do my scuba diver instructor course. I want to do this. I want to do that. Like cancer can wait, right? (laughs) And where were you? Where were you in the world when this happened? That was still South Africa in Johannesburg. And I was meant to be doing the next part of my trip was meant to be doing some volunteer work in some of the local communities because I'd studied or I was in the middle of my degree studying nutrition so I wanted to go and see some of the you know nutritional impacts of different diets diet types and stuff like that and also just try to help them in their communities there and then I also wanted to go and do my scuba diver instructor um, on the coast so <laughs> yes full book of plans exactly and cancer was uh, planning on taking that away from me And my dad sort of backed me up and was like, oh yeah, like we can do that. We'll sort something out. And then that doctor said I needed to go and see an oncologist. And the oncologist was the one that sat down with me and he said, melanoma is not something you play around with. And I was like, what does that mean? He's like, go home, get this sorted out. You live in Australia. You've got some of the top specialists in the world. You're being ridiculous staying here because our research is not nearly as good as what you've got at home. And on top of that, if you can get on top of this early, you've still got your entire life ahead of you. If you start playing around with it now, you're risking your life. So had you heard of melanoma from before that? In a sense, I think so. But it was definitely that, you know, that old person's disease. Who, Like if you've been living in the sun for like 50 years of your life, like that to me was what it was, was, you know, the tradies and people who had such severe sun exposure were the ones that, had melanoma it wasn't something that I thought was like even relevant to someone in my age and you know obviously and I think this comes up so much is when you do the research and you have a look into it it's actually the most prominent in our age group between 15 and 39 it's the number one cancer killer that's right so it's devastating and it's something that people don't take seriously so what happened then I still was fighting it a little bit I think there was a part of me that just wasn't ready to let go of that dream And my mum and my dad were fighting quite a lot because dad was like, oh, no, she can stay. Like, we'll get it sorted. But then it started coming up that they wanted me to do MRIs and PET scans. And when you're overseas, those things cost. And they were going to cost us like $5,000 for a PET scan and, you know, two or 3000 for an MRI. And it was starting to become a very expensive little trip that I was planning on having and started to sort of come to reality that that was just being very selfish to expect my parents to fork out that money because I didn't want to go home. So we eventually came to an agreement that I was going to stay for another week, just sort of tie up odds and ends, go and see some family and then get on a flight back home. And while I was sort of saying my goodbyes, my mum was being my amazing secretary at home and finding, you know, the right GPs to go and see the right doctors, all the leading specialists within ocular melanoma we actually she did reach out to that original doctor or like their clinic and they basically said that now that I've been diagnosed I was none of their business and refused to see me which was yeah because Um, they thought there might be litigation I think so and part of me wishes I'd actually followed up on it there was a part of me that didn't want to and some of me that wishes I had of because I never want someone else to go through what I went through as well because he he really should have had my back and had helped me understand what was going on and also being supportive of me going and getting second opinions, which she just wasn't. And I think from what I've understood from other specialists that I've seen as well is unless you've seen ocular melanoma, unless you've seen conjunctival melanoma firsthand and treated a lot of cases of it, which is very hard to do when it's such a rare cancer, you don't understand all the ins and outs of it. So yes, it would have been my best interest for him to refer me on from the start, unfortunately. So what Um, happened when you came back to Australia? I went straight and saw, the first person I went and saw was a new GP. He was a specialised, like, skin cancer specialist as well as, like, a regular GP. So he was my first point of call because you've got to get those referrals in. And because I'd been diagnosed overseas, there was nothing, like, on the books here. So I had to go and see him. And he was absolutely amazing. My ophthalmologist in South Africa actually had a workmate who lived in Melbourne. Um, and they studied together and then he moved over this way and he gave me his name and I got my GP to refer me straight to him and then my GP and my this new ophthalmologist were both on the phone to the Royal Ironbeer Hospital in Melbourne trying to get me into the clinics as quickly as possible to get seen by 
for people who deal with ocular melanoma as they're pretty much their sole sort of focus because I think in every state there's only like one or two specialists in the area and then from there it was like going to these clinics and then after that I remember being told we'd done everything right and it was just sort of like a sit wait and watch game and that was always hard to sort of hear is that you've done everything right and I probably could have sat and watched from South Africa and then he was like oh you could go back to university you could start studying I was like oh no I think my head's a little bit all over the place at the moment. I think I'm just going to take some time off, which is probably good because in that time I still had to have a couple of other surgeries. And they did, I think, one other biopsy, which came back benign. And then I think for like that first, that six month period, everything was really just starting to look pretty good for me. I kind of remember thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones. I haven't really had to face any treatment. I haven't had to, you know, I don't look sick. I don't feel sick. I'm doing really well. And I felt very blessed in that moment with how easy my journey had been compared to most other people's. Because up until that point, I had the, you know, the, the cancer picture I had was, you know, the chemo patients who've got no hair that they've lost all that weight and they feel so sick all the time. And for me, I was like, I don't feel any of that. I mean, it was a very hard reality to kind of go, I'm extremely, like, I'm technically extremely sick. And yet there is nothing in my body that feels sick and feels unwell. And it wasn't until probably about the eight month mark in August I was almost overnight noticed these, it was like five new black spots on the white of my eye and in the eyelid at this point. And then there was also a lump in my bottom eyelid that was about the size of a pea. And I remember feeling very unsure of it, but my doctor had also said to me, you know, you might just have the type of, you know, skin on your eye or, you know, that sort of skin that's going to freckle a little bit and you might notice some spots coming up every now and then, but you don't need to freak out every single time. That's not that likely that it could be ocular melanoma every single time. So I still went back to my GP first. My GP looked at me for, I think it was like 30 seconds, felt the lump underneath my eye and just was on the phone to the Royal Idea Hospital and said, no, we need to get Jess in there immediately, which was a bit concerning because he's so calm, cool and collected most of the time. And went up there, my regular specialist was actually in a conference overseas. So I was seeing someone else and I think he was like, he was still very trustworthy. He was still an absolutely incredible doctor, but he did tell me that that lump underneath my eye, he thought was just a blocked tear duct and that he was going to do another local biopsy on the spots on my eye. And then when I went in for that surgery, I came out of it and I remember him saying he couldn't biopsy quite a few, like couldn't remove quite a few of the spots. He didn't take the lump underneath my eye out or anything like that. And that was a bit like, what do you mean? Like, why, why didn't you do any of that? And then the following, like the follow-up to that appointment or to that surgery was with my original specialist again. And he took like one look at my eye and saw the lump and went, no, that's melanoma, that's spread. And I just went, what? And he's like, yeah, we're going to have to take a more drastic response to this. And with the ocular melanoma, the way they kind of deal with treatment there is like the first option is they try and preserve the site in the eye. So they try their best to keep you being able to see, to keep moving forward that way. When they can't preserve the sight anymore, they try and preserve the actual structure of the eye so that you can have prosthetics. And last of all, they try and preserve the life when that's mm. no longer possible. So I kind of went from straight from being the preserve the sight to being the preserve the life stage. And I didn't even have a moment to kind of collect my thoughts. And the doctor just said, we need to think about doing a more drastic surgery. We're going to have to remove the eye. And he didn't explain at that point that I was getting a surgery called an exenteration, which is they have to not only remove the eye itself, but they had to remove the contents of the eye socket and they had to get the margins on the eyelids because it had now technically spread to proper skin melanoma and the margins are different for skin melanoma versus ocular melanoma. So they had to take, I think it's the four centimeter diameter around it and close over the eye socket for good. So I remember having a huge argument with the doctors and there was like screaming and fighting. And I was like, no, you've got to think about chemotherapy or radiation. At that point it was, I think 2015. So Keytruda, one of the immunotherapies had just sort of come onto the scene. We're like, what about Keytruda? Why can't we do that? And my doctor was just like, no, 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 no. 
was like, no, what do you mean no? And he's like, if you don't do this surgery, you won't be here in five years. And I was just like, I just remember looking at my parents because both of them were in the room at that point. And I was just like, please help me. Like, I just felt so helpless. I was like, I don't want this life of looking different at all. Like it was such a hard choice. I was at that stage, I was 22. And I was like, I don't want to look different. I want to, don't want to be different. I know what it's like. I've seen what our society's like, unfortunately. And I don't want to be that. I don't want to have to make that choice. But on the other side, it was like, I was literally being given, you know, this option and this choice to make that was going to, you know, help me survive. And so many people who have a cancer diagnosis don't get that option and that choice. So I went home that night and I was very much in two minds of like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to look like a freak. And that was literally what I was naming myself at that point was like, I don't want to be a freak. That's what I'm going to look like. And then on the other side, I was like, but I could embrace this. And I could make it my own and I can wear my scars with pride because I have actually embraced the situation. I've chosen to save my life. I have done everything in my power to be here. And that is so much more than what I look like and what I'm presented as. And I can embrace that and become someone stronger on the other side of it. And it was this constant battle in my mind for about 24 hours straight of how I was actually going to deal with this moving forward. And eventually I just went, well, it would be selfish for me to not embrace it. And if I'm being given a second chance at life, locking myself in my room, telling myself that I'm a freak, all of those sort of negative connotations that I was putting on it is only going to deprive me of a life that I'm being blessed with right now. So it was that sort of like, well, okay, how do I embrace the situation? How do I make the most of a very average situation at best? And it was when I went, well, I can make this my own. And that was kind of where the whole eye patch thing came in. And I got very excited by the fact that, you know, I didn't have to just wear a black eye patch and kind of hide behind it. I was like, well, if I'm going to look different, I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to make it my own type of thing and really own the situation and own the narrative here. And within like two days, I was telling my family and my friends that I was going to be the coolest eye pirate around mm-hmm. <laughs> and found like all the places to get really cool eye patches and my sister within a week had set up like a GoFundMe page to help me get the eye patches because they're very expensive mm. which was something we would never have known and yeah so that was sort of the way we moved through that and then went through with the surgery about a month later and on the other side of that I kind of remember feeling like pretty much life had gone back to normal. It was like I was studying again. I was able to drive pretty quickly. I don't know if that was legal or not, but I definitely was behind the wheel within two weeks. <laughs> and like I was working again. I was socializing. And I was like the only point of difference was really that I had this fun new accessory that I was able to match in with my outfits and make sure the colors matched. And it was a bit of fun to start with and I still have fun with it now. But everything else went back to normal. I was back at the gym. I was back exercising. I was back doing all the things I love. And life on the other side wasn't as different as I guess I'd sort of painted it out to be. And then, you know, as the time went on, you know, I got stronger. I got healthier. By about the six-month mark, I was actually training for my first half marathon. I remember as we sort of hit September the following year, and it was sort of nearing on that year mark, me and mum were sitting at home and we were excitedly talking about how we were actually going to celebrate my one year anniversary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, we're going to have, you know, the eye balloons and the eye cake and all of those sort of exciting things to bring it in. And unfortunately it was actually the same day that we started having that conversation. I had a seizure in my bathroom um, and I was very lucky to have my mum there with me because she wasn't actually meant to be at home that day. And I can remember the entire seizure, uh, which I know is very rare, and was picked up by the ambulance, sent down to the, hope, the um, local hospital in my area where they did a CT scan first. The CT scan showed something. So they did an MRI to get a clearer view of what was going on. Then a doctor came in and my mum had actually gone home because I'm one of four kids. And she'd just gone home to check in on the kids because we'd been in the hospital for, golly, probably close to 10 hours by this point. And she'd gone home to get some food and sort my other siblings out and just touch base. The doctor came in and said to me, I'm not going to speak to you right now. I want to wait until your mum gets here. And I think there's this constant battle when you're in your early 20s as well. of like doctors sometimes look at you as an adult and sometimes look at you as a child. 
Mm. And for me at that point, she was like, oh, no, I don't want to talk to you when your mum's not here. I just said back to her, I was like, my mum's not here. That's fine. I'm over 20, like I'm 23, you could, 20, yeah, 23 at that stage. I was like, you can talk to me about it. It's fine. And she's like, no, I think it's best if I wait. And I was really annoyed. I was like, oh, gosh, I just want to get to the bottom of this. I just want to know what's going on. At this point, I was like, oh, okay, maybe they're going to tell me I have, um, what's it called, epilepsy. And I was just like, I just want to be, I just want to diagnose this. I just want to go home. I'm done. Mum came back about an hour later and then the doctor came in and she said, you know, she sat us both down and she just looked devastated. And that's kind of when it hit that something else was going on. And I just remember her saying like, it's the melanoma, it's back, it's on your brain and we need to get you straight up to the Peter Mac hospital now. I think they had to keep me in that hospital specifically for 24 hours just to make sure I didn't have another seizure. So they'd already booked me into the Peter Mac hospital within a day. And that was kind of this like earth shattering moment of what happens now. Like you don't want melanoma on your brain. It's not a place that you want it. It's not, it's not very easy to treat. And that became very evident when I was at the hospital at Peter Mac and they started coming in and saying, you know, we need to do all of this, all these different options that we need to start looking at. The first one is that we need to immediately do brain surgery on that one tumor that's causing issues. But there were, I want to say like six or seven other tumors, both on the frontal lobe and near the cerebellum and not like all of those little tumors were like one to two millimeters and completely inoperable so the one that had had hemorrhaged and caused the seizure was on the motor cortex and that was why it actually had shown up in such a way because like as in shown up with a seizure was because it was there and they kind of just went well you know, we've got to do this. And then they started throwing around all of these different options of you know, potentially doing treatment, potentially doing radiation. I was quite vocal about not wanting to do whole brain radiation. At that point, I'd actually decided I wanted a career in speaking and coaching and things like that. And I knew that, you know, the, especially where they were going to have to put the focus points being on the frontal lobe, that really could impact my ability to speak. So I was quite adamant that unless it was 100% necessary and unless it was a, they could like guarantee there was a benefit to me having this whole brain radiation, I really didn't want it. Thankfully, they did see that from my point of view and just recommended the surgery. And then one of the newer types of immunotherapy had just kind of started coming up, which was the dual treatment of ipilimumab and nivolumab. <clears throat> and at that point, that was in 2016, at that point, that was not covered at all by the PDS. And when my doctor told me that initially, he was like, you know, these are your options with treatment as far as protruders on PDS, but you've actually got a very rare subtype or rare mutation, which is the NRAS mutation, which actually responds better from the studies that they've done to this ipilimumab and nivolumab blend. However, that wasn't on the PDS. And it was going to, I think at that point, it was like 35,000 minimum per dose. And the first thing I remember saying was like, and he said we had to do a minimum of, well, I think maximum of four doses and then do the volume map continuously for two years afterwards, but the volume map on its own was covered. And I just remember initially saying to my doctors, absolutely not. Like you cannot put my parents into a situation where we're owing $150,000 or $120,000 or anything over $100,000 to try and save my life with a treatment that you cannot guarantee is going to work. And just kept saying to me like you know you've got to realize that this is your only chance and I continuously said no my parents were very upset with me obviously because you know they're sitting there going we want to know that we've done the most we can to survive like to help you save your life and at the same time I'm sitting there going I don't want to leave you in a position where you're you know you've got that kind of debt and what happens if this doesn't work and then you don't have a daughter and you've got you know 120,000 debt um, to your name and I just couldn't quite conceptualize it and it wasn't until my dad actually suggested doing a fundraiser to raise the money for it that I accepted the treatment so we started that and we actually managed to raise the money and with the amount of awareness that we brought to I guess my case and stuff like that we actually got the treatment put onto the PBS. I think it was just for people or just for people with stage four melanoma at that point. Obviously there's been a lot of reforms done on that. 
since then, but that was huge. I remember going in for my last treatment and my doctor saying that there was 66 people within the Peter Mac hospital that had, had that had been granted access to the dual treatment because of the activism that we've done through that. Wow. So, Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that was definitely one of the proudest moments and things. It, you know, it makes me very grateful in a sense that I had the connections and the knowledge and the understanding of how to raise that money and how to not just change my life, but impact so many others. So how long ago was that, Jess? So that treatment finished in December 2016. Mm -hmm. And then I was meant to start the, I think I had one dose of just the straight nivolumab in January 2017. And that's when a lot of those um, side effects from the immunotherapy started to set in and I was actually taken off immediately. So tell us about some of those side effects you experienced. <laughs> they were awful. It was so hard, like with, I think, even just backtracking, like with immunotherapy, when you're going through it, or when I was going through it, you don't experience the same sort of sickness. It's not attacking your body the same way that chemotherapy and radiation does. So I was tired and I was quite exhausted after treatments. But other than that, it wasn't awful going through the treatment. But some of the side effects that you can experience, and I remember I had a list that I used to have with me at all times and have to check off and make sure that I wasn't experiencing any of the side effects because it can affect you know any other main organ system like it can do your lungs or your bowels or I think there's even nerve damage that it can do and stuff like that so the, the, the side effects are quite huge and for me I'd experienced some mild side effects throughout the treatment and then while I was at home and I woke up the one morning and I just had this headache that was so so incredibly painful it felt like someone was literally just like shaking my head and like putting, I didn't even know what into it. It was just so sore. I was vomiting and I just couldn't stop. And we called the ambulance and I remember going down to the hospital then. And initially the doctor was just like, oh, okay, well, they did a MRI. The doctor on call then actually said to me, he came in, he was like, I don't understand why you're here. I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm like, I've got stage four melanoma on the brain if I'm experiencing headaches and vomiting, that's a pretty big side effect. Like we need to know what's going on. And he didn't really want to put me in for an MRI. Eventually he did and turned around and said there was nothing wrong, wanted to send me home. And I was like, no, 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 I've had to relearn how to walk. And there's a lot of stairs at our house and all that sort of thing. Like it's actually a risk to my safety right now if you send me home and I'm barely able to walk from here to the, like three steps to the wall. So he let me stay there and it was only like a couple of days later, they had another doctor come in and see me and he sent me up to the Peter Mac where they did a couple of tests and said that they thought maybe it was something to do with my cortisol levels, but nothing was confirmed then. And it happened a couple more times and eventually it was so dire and so drastic that they realized that my body wasn't producing any cortisone anymore. So it affected my hypothalamus, I think. So I was experiencing hepatitis, meningitis, and anemia all at once. So basically the, my body was attacking my own liver. It was attacking my red blood cells. So, and I had blood transfusions that, that time when I went into hospital and my body was literally attacking the blood as it was hitting my veins. It was quite scary to watch. Yeah. And they just kept going like, we don't know what to do. Like your blood, like your red blood cell count is just dropping and dropping and dropping and we don't know what to do. And at this point, I was still very adamant and a bit stubborn and said I didn't want to go onto the steroids to treat those side effects because if I went on to steroids, it meant I had to stop treatment. If I stopped treatment, I was so scared that it was going to let the cancer progress. So it was this whole decision of like, yes, my body's being attacked, but if you take me off treatment, then I'm in a, like even worse situation. And it took for a doctor to come in and say, you don't understand that, you know, at the moment your red blood cell count is so low, your body's attacking its liver. If you don't treat that now, all of the, like, you won't be here. Like, you've, you've got to take these steroids. They are absolutely imperative to you potentially surviving. I was like, oh, okay. And it took me until that moment to realize that the side effects of my treatment could have killed me just as much as the actual cancer itself. 
And then it took a long time. My liver really didn't respond to it. My red blood cell count after about two days or three days on the steroids went up. But at this point I was like that trip to the hospital alone. Like I was almost comatose for three days. I don't remember very much at all. I slept for, I want to say like 23 of the 24 hours. And like my mum was sitting there and anytime, like I needed my mum so badly near me because I was so terrified. But at the same time, if she even moved or tried to eat or anything like that, I was like, oh, stop. Like it, the sound just like reverberated through my brain. It was so loud. And so it was, just, it was probably one of the most scary situations. And my mum didn't want to leave because we didn't think I was going to survive at that point. Wow. To yeah. thinking that it was the end of your treatment to starting a whole another rigmarole yeah yeah (laughs) so where are you at now Jess with your health so the only side effect that stuck around was the cortisol deficiency so my body and they don't know whether or not it was more to do with the treatment or being on such high doses of steroids afterwards my body no longer produces cortisone or cortisol at all So I have a long-term side effect called Addison's disease, which means I have to take steroids continuously to basically replace the cortisol that my body would naturally produce. And learning to balance that's been quite interesting as well. Aside from that, I've been really good since about May 2017. I stopped having all the side effects. We got on top of them there. And We've been scanning ever since and there's never been a change in my scans and everything's looking really good, actually. I think in October this year, it'll be four years. Well, that's great to hear. And just what a story. I mean, from the very beginning, that 24 hours, I'm just in awe that (laughs) as a 22, 23-year-old, you had this self-awareness and reflection to say, uh, okay, I'm facing, you know, this change in my life and I'm going to make a decision right now to be a really cool eye patch wearing, you know, and, <laughs> and make it that part of my identity. And yeah. to do that so early on in your treatment and at such a young age, what a credit <laughs> to you. Like that shows the maturity of someone that is a lot more older and, you know, life experience. But it just shows that... <laughs> You certainly do have resilience and it's probably something that you've had from a much younger age. Uh, yeah. It's <laughs> probably just been developed even more throughout your treatment. So tell us about the book that you published, I Won. I think the idea really came from when I was going through this whole journey, I just remember feeling so alone, especially having such a rare cancer when I was being treated in the Royal Eye India Hospital. Something I didn't mention was that I used to be the youngest in the waiting room. And it used, like, up until they called my name, you knew, like, I knew that people would be quite shocked when they saw it was me going in for the appointments and not, like, my mum or my grandma that was sitting with me, like, supporting me through the appointments because... like ocular melanoma is actually quite an old person's cancer like usually so for me like even when I went through all of that it was this whole time of like I was so alone and all I wished was that I had someone to reach out to who understood who'd been through it in some capacity and my doctor was very conservative on that he really didn't want me to reach out to anyone he wouldn't help me find like support networks and stuff like that because in his mind he's like I can't control what other people say and they could scare you out of having treatments so I understood it from that point of view and I started to really reach out to other people who'd been through similar situations that were very rare and things like that and wanted to have a collection of role models who I could lean on and like learn from and feel supported and understood by their stories and know that I wasn't the first person to face this So for me, it was one of the driving forces for that book was that I never wanted someone else to feel alone going through what they were going through. And the second was that when I started looking into how to build resilience, there wasn't a lot of information out there. There was a lot of like, you know, well, a resilient person does this or a resilient person is that, but there wasn't the tools and the skills available. So what I did with my book was actually sort of focus in on the story itself and like really sort of going through that roller coaster of a journey that I went through 
and then kind of reflecting back on the skills and the tools that I developed beforehand that were really, really helpful when I was going through that adversity and that challenge. And it came down to the method that I call the patch method. Yes, after the eye patch. <laughs> and that kind of just goes on like, P stands for positive and that's about learning to focus on the positives and the positive emotions that you can create. A is for adventure and that's about having a growth mindset and continuously looking for opportunities and things that, you know, that you can control and that you can stretch for. Um, T is for thankful and my practice of gratitude was honestly one of the things that got me through the darkest days in hospital was just learning to look for and appreciate some of the small mundane things that most people would just kind of go, oh, that's cool. Like I used to feel extremely excited if I was in one of the hospital rooms where I got to see the sunset or the sunrise. I used to, you know, make sure that I took note of the amazing doctors or the nurses that were looking after me or the way they made me smile or laugh and things like that. It was just those sort of moments that were captured and brought me joy and made me realize that there was still something in life to appreciate even in the hardest moments mm. see is create and that's really around that sort of goal setting mindset and how to you know really set goals that are going to push you forward and excite you and things like that and then h is for honor and that's really around self-care and values development and knowing that you may not have control over your situation but you do have control over the person that you are and how you present yourself and respond to situations so yeah Wow, well done. So thank you. <laughs> what has been, I guess, your favorite career moment? Was it publishing a book? I know you've done so much since then. Um, and even yeah. from your diagnosis, what was it seven years ago? Like that wasn't long ago. That wasn't even a decade ago, but already no. <laughs> you have achieved more than what many people your age will ever yeah. achieve. So what are some favorite moments? So Another one I didn't actually touch on earlier, I still decided to finish my university degree while I was being treated for my stage four ocular melanoma. Yeah. yeah, I actually went to my oncologist and I was like, yeah, so I'm just going to finish my degree. I had three units left. I was like, I'm just going to keep doing that. And he just kind of looked at me and was like, you sure? Because like most people defer for about, and like, even if they're going through like one tenth of what you're going through. You don't need to do it. And I just remember, for me, it was this moment of, you know, going to study my degree in nutrition was the first decision I'd made as an adult and the first commitment I'd made as an adult. And it was a sort of feeling of, if I don't make it through to the other side, I want to know that I've completed the one thing that I've set out to do and the one goal that I've set myself. And if I do make it through, I don't want this degree hanging over my head. And instead of being able to, pursue things like my speaking and like coaching, I don't want to have to put those things on hold because there's still this degree to finish. So for me, it was like, I've just got to finish it. I've just got to do my absolute best. So in June, 2017, I actually graduated and got to walk across the stage. I was awarded with the Vice Chancellor's Medal of Excellence for persisting with my degree as well through severe hardship. Congratulations. <laughs> so that was, absolutely incredible that yeah for me that was one moment that I'm so proud of myself and sometimes still think that I was a little bit insane for doing that <laughs> there was definitely multiple times where that laptop of mine nearly was thrown off the balcony when I was just like this is ridiculous I can't do this but, um, I'm sure there was <laughs> so, so with everything that you've been through how do you manage to be resilient and positive because it just from talking to you it just sounds like it is like ingrained that is if from the core how do you get through it and I've always had a lot of time to think about this obviously like as I mentioned there's that patch method that really like I do focus so much on and that is sort of the crux of the behaviors that I created there was also a belief within me that I changed and I think there's this whole mentality around surviving cancer and people hate the idea or there's, you know, there's those two sides and I'm sure you've heard it before. Like a lot of people hate the idea of survivorship or that terminology of like being winning or losing against cancer. And for me, what I changed very early on was that the only way that cancer could beat me was if it changed who I was as a person. 
Wow. And I think that was the whole thing for me is like, as long as I am true to myself, as long as I don't let this disease impact who I am and take that away from me, I will never have lost. You've just given me goosebumps. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I think that was, it was that mentality for me. And it was such an empowering one as well, because it's helped me not just get through that there, but it's one of like, it's the thing that makes me want to thrive and to grow and to continue to be the best version of myself. And to me, it's like the purpose in my life is to be that and to help other people be there too. Mm, that's so beautiful. Jess, um, <laughs> conjunctival ocular melanoma is extremely rare and yes. there are other cancers and conditions that are extremely rare as well. From your perspective, from you know all these misdiagnoses and everything else that went on with your treatment, what would you want to change in the future when it comes to either treatments or education, really from a patient's perspective? I think from a patient's perspective, what I hope is that doctors who aren't experienced or people that aren't experienced put their ego aside and reach out to the, to the experts in the field. I think for me, that's probably been the one thing that's the hardest to let go of is the fact that there have been doctors in the past who wanted, I don't know whether it's like have that knowledge that they've been able to treat it or to, you know, the ego side of it. But to me, it's like, if you don't understand that big enough and brave enough to admit that and to pass it off to someone who does understand it, because these patients are in a situation where they are incredibly vulnerable and you've got to understand that for them they need the best treatment possible because there are many people out there that understand the disease especially Um, from someone that's gone through it like it it, there's one thing treating it and being able to medicalize it and operate on it but the other thing is speaking to someone from an experience who's actually gone through that and had to lay there at night thinking this is my diagnosis Yeah. yeah absolutely and i think there is a huge value in support networks as well that a lot of professionals I think are cautious of and I sometimes understand that from their point of view but at the same time with something so rare you don't go to the hospital and see very many people and connect with them who are going through that and they do need to be empowered like we do need to be empowered with the information and with the support network who can actually get it. And what are three pieces of advice for someone that may be experiencing a rare health condition or diagnosis? You mentioned the patch method, but have you got any other advice that you can share? Absolutely. For me, from this is probably from more of like a medical point of view, but making sure that you've got a team of doctors around you that you really trust is so, so important. And also on top of that, knowing that you can ask for a second opinion and get referrals out. This was something that took me a long time to realize. And I've actually shifted quite a few members in my medical team because they stick with that holistical response and that idea ideology that I've got. And that's okay. That's their methods, but it doesn't fit with the way I want to be treated and the way I want my team to work. The second would be, is that you need to become your own advocate and you need to almost become an expert in your disease when you've got something so rare there are going to be times where people don't even specialists and doctors don't understand it completely so if you are armed with information and prepared to sort of share that with them I think it's so empowering and it also I think helps you make decisions later down the track with what your treatments are and it empowers you to be a part of that team rather than just be guided through by someone else. And I think the third one, and it's one that I learned quite early on, is don't take the statistics to heart with something so rare. When I was told that I needed to do the exenteration, my specialist had two patients before me that had done the exenteration. One of them had survived, one of them hadn't. So I had a 50-50 chance in that perspective. With my degree and like a lot of the stuff that I've done, I'd studied quite a lot of science beforehand. So I knew that that data is not very reliable. You know, with a lot of more common diseases and cancers and stuff like that they use meta-analysis which are for thousands of people and thousands of cases and they build up that with rare diseases often it's like maybe a hundred people maximum that they've tested over a very long period of time and you know medicine's constantly developing and things like that so for me it was always looking at that and going the stats don't apply to me and I can actually be the person that flips those stats. So even with the surgery, I remember thinking like, you know, I could be the one that makes it two thirds more likely to survive 
if one person's already survived, if I'm the next survivor, then it makes it two thirds more likely and things like that. So it's just this constant mind point of like, like medicine's changing. Stats don't necessarily apply to my situation and don't take them to heart because if I do, I would have been defeated right from the start. What fantastic advice. <laughs> well, <laughs> Jess, where can people find more about you, the work that you're doing? I'm sure you've got some exciting projects that you're working on as well. Yes, I, I've been very busy um, with this period of time, actually just sort of focusing on some extra material. But at the moment, I am on Instagram, Facebook, and my website. Everything is under Jess Van Ziel, which is J-E-S-S-B-A-N-Z-E-I-L. If you're having trouble spelling that you can also pop jess.coach into a web browser and it'll take you straight to my website amazing well thank you so much for spending your morning with me i just absolutely loved hearing your story and your guidance on resilience it's yeah truly amazing thanks money What an incredible, incredible story. There was just so many goosebump moments and emotional moments and aha moments and just all the moments in that interview with Jess. She is so raw. You can just hear the passion in her voice um, and has an amazing way with words and telling a story. The three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me where number one, it's just always worth asking for a second opinion. Number two, following this interview, I felt empowered. I felt inspired. And I truly felt like I had a mental shift. And meanwhile, I actually did this post-recording or this outro weeks after our initial interview, and I still felt the same way. It seems that Jess just has this natural storytelling ability and this ability to share her philosophy for resilience just seems to rub off. Number three, Jess wrote her book for a few reasons. One, because she felt alone and didn't want other people to feel the same. And two, because she was searching for information on resilience and she couldn't find any. Both fantastic reasons. But she also found that it was a reflective exercise that helped her see positivity in her experience. Jess has a gratefulness guide that can be downloaded from her website and her book can be purchased online too. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode as much as I enjoyed speaking with Jess. If you felt like this touched you or you feel like it should be shared with someone, then please share across social media, leave us a review. And until next week, stay skin powered. We have an announcement to make. We are about to launch the Derm Health Co. magazine. Really more like a guidebook than a magazine, we are releasing a digital publication that is dedicated to acute and chronic skin conditions and everything in between. It's a guidebook with everything you need to know from products to lifestyle changes to support groups and associated resources, and each different issue will be on a different topic. Issue one is on breast cancer and all the different changes to skin, to hair and to lymph health following breast cancer diagnosis. The magazine is now ready for pre-order and you can get it online on our website at www.dermhealth.co. It will be released in April of 2020 and after this one we will be looking at doing other issues on other topics. So we would love for you to check this out. Make sure that you head to the link and you order your pre-release so that you get it as soon as it goes live. This is just another way that we are trying to raise awareness and advocacy for those with acute and chronic skin conditions to make people feel more skin connected. Thank you so much and I'd love to hear what you think. Thank you.